Morning church. So this morning's reading is from John chapter 12 verse 20 to 36. So I'll just give you a moment to turn there or go to the place on your phone. So John 12 chapter 20, I mean John 12 verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, This voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now it is time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? Jesus then told them, You are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the darkness does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light, so that you may become children of the light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, James, very much indeed. Well, as you heard from uh, Portia's prayer, um, Alice is uh, not well today, and we do hope that she'll recover soon, but we're very grateful to Ruby for standing in the gap and holding the music team together this morning. And then um, this week on Wednesday, we have our monthly prayer meeting, and we're going to do our best to get the outline to you a day earlier than normal, so that those of you who struggle with tech have an opportunity to print it off. So please can you send me your personal prayer requests by tomorrow evening at the latest, and that way we can get the um, outline to you on Tuesday, which uh, gives you two days to print it off before we gather for our prayer meeting over Zoom on Wednesday at quarter past seven. Good. Well, I do hope you've got your Bible open or your phone um, at the right place. John chapter 12 and verse 20. 
and uh, let's ask for the Lord's help as we come to this great passage together under the title, Four Cross Words. Well, Heavenly Father, we do thank you and praise you for the tremendous privilege of an open Bible. Uh, We do think of those many peoples around the world for whom that is a sheer impossibility. Help us, therefore, not to take it for granted. And now what we know not will you teach us, what we have not will you give us, and what we are not will you make us. And we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, this week um, I read about a Muslim in Africa who became a Christian. Uh, Some of you, I think, know from personal experience that there are places in Africa where that would be a life-threatening decision. And maybe that was the reason why some of his friends asked him, well, why have you become a Christian? And uh, he answered like this. He said, well, um, suppose you were going down the road and uh, suddenly the road forked in two directions. You didn't know which way to go. And there at the fork were two men. One was dead and the other one was alive. Which one would you ask which way to go? Now, when I read that, I thought, what an absolutely brilliant answer. Uh, For a start, it's short. Uh, He didn't put his friends off with a a sort of long theological argument. And it's also faithful, isn't it? Because in the Christian view of things, our lives are very much like a journey on a road which divides. And uh, when each of us reach the place where the road of our lives divides, we've got to decide which way to go. And his answer was also personally challenging. Uh, So when this man's friends reached that fork in the road of their own lives, were they going to ask a dead prophet? Or were they going to ask the living Lord? Now, I start with that this morning because Easter is just two weeks away. And for many people, um, I guess Easter in Cape Town means time off work, uh, the Two Oceans Marathon, uh, or a short trip up the garden route. But uh, behind all of the busyness and the distractions, some of the people that we know and love have reached the point in their lives where the road divides. They want to know which way to go. They have questions. And God has put us in their lives to give them good answers. So we need to be ready. Uh, And in that regard, this passage is a tremendous help to us. Uh, It comes right at the very end of Jesus' public ministry. Uh, It's one of the most profound and probably demanding passages in the whole of John's Gospel. But don't let that put you off. Because here, Jesus tells us very important things about the significance of his death on the cross that we don't find quite so clearly anywhere else. So just glance with me, please, at verse 33. Verse 33 
Uh, Jesus has just given a fairly tightly packed speech. And then John gives us his own editorial comment. He said, he says, Jesus said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. In other words, if we want to understand how Jesus understood his own death, well, we've come to the right place. Because in this passage, Jesus himself tells us. So here then are four words about the cross from the lips of Jesus. And it's my prayer that as we uh, look at this, that we would use these words and the realities they describe to stimulate and to challenge the thinking of our friends and family over this Easter period. And uh, the first thing we learn, which I hope will appear on the screen, is that the cross was in God's timetable. The cross was in God's timetable. Come with me to verse 23. Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, throughout this book, Jesus has been preparing us for his hour. That's the first word about the cross. So, back in chapter 2, do you remember Jesus was at a wedding in Cana in Galilee, and they ran out of wine. Uh, And uh, Mary, his mother, comes to Jesus and asks him to do something about it. And Jesus replied, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. John 2, verse 4. Then a bit later, in chapter 7, uh, Jesus' brothers tell him what practically every good PR consultant tells their clients, namely, that if Jesus wants to attract a following, he must show himself to the people at one of the major festivals in Jerusalem. But again, Jesus says, the hour for me has not yet come, chapter 7, verse 6. And then later still, when Jesus is preaching in the temple, uh, the authorities get very angry at his message. But John comments, at this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. That's chapter 7, verse 30. Now, friends, you see, all of these references to the hour of Jesus remind us that God is working to a timetable. Now, timetables, of course, are very familiar to us. Uh, Human beings, and particularly at the college, are expert at making timetables. And all of us live under the tyranny of at least one of them. So, for example, in your office... Uh, Everybody knows that certain things must happen at the right time or the customers will be unhappy. At home, the children must be taken to school at the right time or they'll be put in detention. And when you travel to another country, you must check in at the airport at the right time or you'll miss your plane. So, So timetables are very much a part of life and we couldn't possibly manage without them. But what Jesus is reminding us here is that there is one timetable that trumps all the rest. 
And for us to make our plans about life without reference to God's timetable, well, is at best rather unwise and at worst extremely foolish. So what can we learn this morning from this particular detail in God's timetable that Jesus calls his hour? Well, as we've already seen throughout the gospel so far, the hour has been not yet. But here, suddenly, Jesus says, the hour has come. And the obvious question is, well, why now? What's changed? Well, the clue is the arrival of some Greeks in verse 20. You'll notice that they come to the disciples and they say, we would like to see Jesus. And by his response, Jesus is saying that this is the event that starts the countdown to the cross. The hour has come. But why was that particular event so important to Jesus? Well, John tells us that these Greeks had come to worship at the Passover feast. So what I want you to do is to put yourself into their shoes for a moment. Because when they arrived at the temple in Jerusalem, what would they have seen? Well, I'll tell you what they would have seen. They would have seen a brick wall. You see, they would have been allowed into the outer courtyard of the temple called the Court of the Gentiles, but then they would find they could go no further. They would have seen a large wall with a sign on it saying effectively, Gentiles keep out, and uh, probably some rather fierce Jewish bouncers as well. Because only Jews could go beyond the court of the Gentiles into the temple itself. But friends, that was never God's plan. Uh, In the Old Testament, the Lord says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Isaiah 56 verse 7. So I wonder if you can picture the irony of what's going on in this passage. At the beginning of this passage, the religious insiders, that is to say the Jewish authorities, they want to kill Jesus because he's a threat to their religious system. But the outsiders, the Greeks, want to worship God and they can't. Do you see the tension? And when Jesus says, the hour has come, he's saying that's all going to change. My death will mean the end of formal, exclusive religion as the only way to God. And instead, my death will mean access to God for everybody who follows me. Now, I wonder if you've thought about the death of Jesus in those terms before. Have you submitted your own priorities in life to God's timetable? That's the first thing this morning. The cross was in God's timetable. Then the second thing that we learn here is that the cross reveals God's character. Uh, One of the most striking insights into the meaning of Jesus' death is given to us in verse 28, 
where Jesus prays, have a look at it, Father, glorify your name. You see, more than anything else, Jesus wants his death to bring glory to God. So glory is the second cross word in our passage this morning. And in order to understand what Jesus is asking, we need to know what the Bible means when it talks about the glory of God. So keep one finger in John chapter 12 and turn left in your Bible to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33 and verse 18. Now while you're turning there, let me tell you that the situation in Exodus 33 is that like so many other people today, Israel has forgotten how God rescued them and has been worshipping an idol, a golden calf. And all that they deserve at this point in the story is to bear the full force of the wrath of God. But Moses has been pleading with God on their behalf not to destroy them, but still to go with them into the promised land. We'll pick it up at verse 18. Then Moses said to the Lord, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Now, friends, what those verses are doing is laying out for us the problem at the very heart of man's search for God. Because ever since Adam and Eve were banished from the garden, men and women have been trying to find a way back to God. I mean, we all, all of us, whether we acknowledge it or not, want a relationship with our Creator. And no matter what people say uh, inside each one of us, uh, there's a restlessness if we don't have that. But here, God says... No one can see me and live. So if we can't see God, how on earth can we possibly have a relationship with him? And the answer from the book of Exodus is that although we can't see God face to face, apparently we can see his glory. So what on earth is it? Well, when Moses asks God to show him his glory... God responds by describing his character. He says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So God's glory is the revelation of his character to sinful human beings. And in Exodus, God says that the most important thing that we need to know about his character is that God shows mercy and compassion to people who don't deserve it. So with that in mind, come back to John chapter 12. 
Because the question before us in our passage is, well, how are the mercy and compassion of God seen in the death of Jesus? And the verse that kind of gets us onto the right road here, please have a look at it, is verse 27. Verse 27. Now, in that verse, Jesus says, Now my heart is troubled. And uh, the word in the original, translated troubled, is a very, very strong word indeed. In fact, a more accurate translation would be terrified, um, horrified, or even revolted. Now, friends, that ought to grab our attention. Because we know, don't we, that some people are capable of facing death quite calmly. I guess all of us have perhaps read stories or maybe seen films of soldiers facing death courageously and even calmly. And maybe some of us know family or friends with a terminal illness who face death with no obvious sign of the terror or the horror that Jesus talks about here. So think about this. Uh, John has already told us uh, how Jesus has done a whole lot of things that no one else could possibly do. He's fed the multitude, he's healed the sick, he's even raised the dead. But as he prepares to face his own death, Jesus is horrified. Now why is that? Well, it's because Jesus knows that in his death, He's going to be rejected by the Father and that he must face his holy and terrible wrath against all the sin and all the rebellion of all humanity. Now, how is that glorious? Well, it's glorious because Jesus did it for us. And you see, when God opens my eyes to see that Jesus has taken the wrath of God for me, that instead of the wrath and the destruction I deserve, God has shown me mercy and compassion, well, then I can only respond in worship and praise. No other response is actually possible. And friends, when that happens, God is being glorified. Now, my question for you this morning is, does that describe your experience? Has there ever been a time when you came to realize that you deserve only the wrath of God and nothing more? Because, my friend, if you've never actually had that realization, you are not yet a Christian. You see, salvation is a personal thing. Uh, The New Testament says, I can only call myself a Christian if I have first been brought face to face with the awful prospect of God's wrath to me personally and then understood that the cross is God's offer of mercy and compassion to me personally. And I have hopefully then responded to that wonderful offer. So the cross reveals 
God's character. That's our second thing. Thirdly this morning, the cross is a crisis for everyone. Look at verse 31. In verse 31, Jesus says, Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. So our third crossword is the word judgment. And uh, the word for judgment in the original language gives us our English word crisis. Now, the media, I'm sure you know and would agree with me, is constantly reminding us that we're facing more crises in the world than ever before. COVID-19, war, famine, poverty, you name it. These are very real crises that affect all of us in this room in different ways. But when Jesus describes his death as judgment on the world, what he's saying is, my death is the critical event in human history. It's actually the ultimate crisis facing every man, woman and child in every generation. Now what does Jesus mean by that? How can something that happened 2,000 years ago possibly be a crisis for you and me this morning? Well, it's a crisis in two senses. First, Jesus' death forces us to make a decision. So remember, will you, that Jesus came not not just as God's representative to us, but also as our representative before Almighty God. You got that clear in your mind? And his death is judgment on the world in the sense that Either we accept his death as our representative, that in the language of verse 24, that he is the kernel of wheat that dies to give us life and we're pardoned, or we reject it and we face the consequences. But friends, you see, unlike all of the other crises that I mentioned a moment ago, This is a crisis that each one of us has to face on our own. You see, in all of the other crises we're so familiar with, just think about this. There are big institutions out there working away on our behalf to find a solution. And it might be the World Health Organization or NATO or the United Nations. But you see, the death of Jesus is a crisis that each one of us must face on our own. There are no government agencies doing it for us. And we've got to decide whether we're going to accept what God has done for us in Christ by honouring him as our Lord and Saviour, or whether we're going to continue on our own way. Because, friends, you see... This is the exact place in the road of our lives where the road divides. The judgment that you and I face on the last day is determined by the decision we make about the death of Jesus right now. Now is the time for judgment on this world. It's an entirely personal 
decision. Have you made that decision yet? Then secondly, Jesus says that his death has broken Satan's rule over our lives. Just look at the second half of verse 31. Jesus says, now, i.e. when he goes to the cross, the prince of this world will be driven out. Prince of this world is the devil. Now, friends, that's wonderful, wonderful news. Yes, it is. But we must get the balance right. Because although Satan has been defeated, he's not yet been destroyed. And the New Testament everywhere warns us that he's prowling around like a lion, looking for people to destroy by turning them away from making a decision about Jesus. But his defeat has already happened, and that defeat has got real significance for Christians today. So just to show you what that significance is, please turn to Hebrews chapter 2. The letter to the Hebrews, chapter 2. Hebrews 2 and verse 14, when you're there. Let's give you a moment to find it. Okay, so the writer to the Hebrews says, Since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. What he's saying is that Satan rules men and women today by giving them an uncontrollable fear of death. Now, we said a moment ago, didn't we, that some people are able to face death quite courageously and calmly. But I think we would all agree that the vast majority of people are frightened by death. We've learned that over the last two years, haven't we? But Hebrews says that at the cross, Jesus has burst that particular prison wide open and detonated the power of Satan in that regard. So, friends, if you're a Christian... Jesus wants you to know that instead of something to be terrified of, you should think of death as as a gateway into the presence of God. That's how we should think about death. And if we do, it's got profound implications for the way that we live. Let me give you an example from history. In the first three centuries after the Lord Jesus walked on the earth... There were a regular sort of series of plagues far worse than COVID-19 sweeping through the Middle East. And inevitably, cities were always the worst affected places. And whenever a plague struck a city, there was total panic and nearly everybody ran away and left. Everybody, that is, except the Christians. And uh, the non-Christian writers at the time were so gobsmacked by that that uh, most of the information that we have about that period of history comes from them because they simply could not believe that the Christians would stay behind to look after the sick and the dying, constantly at risk 
of contracting the plague themselves. Now, of course, the Christians weren't stupid. They understood perfectly well the risks that they were taking, and many of them did indeed die. But unlike everybody else, you see, they were not afraid of death. And the result of that was that uh, through their witness, a huge number of people became Christians and joined the church. Now the point is, you see, you can't live like that unless Jesus Christ has set you free from the fear of death. So, has Jesus done that for you? Has Jesus set you free from your fear of death? Do you believe that your death is actually a gateway into the presence of God? Because if you do, how does it affect the way that you're living now? How does it affect the risks that you're willing to take to show the love of Jesus to other people? Because the cross is a crisis for everyone. And then lastly, the last thing this morning, the cross is a universal invitation. It is a universal invitation. Now you will find uh, still today Christians who give you the impression that uh, God will only accept you if you abide by the particular rules of their denomination. So, just to give you one example, uh, some branches of the, the exclusive brethren, have you heard of the exclusive brethren? Some of you will have done. Some branches of that group insist that their members must marry members of the exclusive brethren, and in their job and their career, they can only work with members of the exclusive brethren. And failure to do that means excommunication. Now, although many of those people are very sincere Christians, many families and many lives have been completely wrecked because of their insistence on teaching, which is actually contrary to Holy Scripture. And one of the passages which they seem to ignore is verse 32. Make sure you don't ignore it. Have a look at verse 32. Jesus says in verse 32, But I... When I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. So our fourth crossword this morning is all men. It's just one word in the original language, which we might just as well translate by the word everyone. Now, of course, when Jesus talks about all men, he's not saying that everyone will be saved whether they've trusted him or not. No, what he is saying is that when he's lifted up on the cross with his arms nailed wide open, he is inviting everyone, irrespective of their racial background, irrespective of their religious background, irrespective of their personal track record and how they've lived, he's inviting them to come to him and to receive forgiveness and become children of God. So, friends, it's an invitation. The cross is an invitation that is open to everyone. But there is an urgency about it. And that's why in verse 36, Jesus says, 
Put your trust in the light while you still have it. Now, of course, in the immediate context when Jesus spoke those words, he's urging his audience to listen to him before he's taken away. But can I say that there is a real urgency for us as well? You see, after the service, you will leave this building and you will go home. And um, within half an hour, you will have forgotten most of what's been said in this building this morning. If you're not yet a Christian, that is an extremely dangerous place to be. So I want to close by sharing with you what one of my favorite commentators on John's Gospel says about verse 36, and I hope that Sebastian will put it on the screen for us. There it is. Bruce Milne says, The implications of turning away from the light of God are terrible in the extreme. And Jesus is concerned that people be clearly aware of them. We are certainly authorized to bear witness with full hearts to the completeness of the salvation which Christ has won for sinners and the joys beyond compare which await those who cast themselves on his mercy. In addition, however, we dare not fail to warn them that the Redeemer is also a judge, that sin unrepented is sin condemned, and that it is and will be, when the king returns, a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31. So if you're not sure this morning where you stand, I do want to urge you not to leave church today without doing something about it. Come and talk to me. Come and talk to one of the team. Whatever you do, don't put it off. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, thank you for preserving these tremendous insights of the Lord Jesus into the meaning of his death. With Easter approaching, please help us to reflect on what we've learned and give us a holy boldness to share it with others as you give us opportunity. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.